Open up to the book of Jonah. We'll be in Jonah chapter 1. If you need a Bible, they're scattered around under the chairs in front of you. You're welcome to grab one. I'm going to go ahead and read. Last week we looked at verses 1 to 3 of Jonah chapter 1. I'll reread those and we'll go all the way to the end of the chapter. It's only 17 verses. And so I'll read uh, this entire chapter. I want you to follow along. Jonah 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. The Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea, so the ship was about to break up. Then the sailors became afraid, and every man cried to his God, and they threw the cargo which was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone below into the hold of the ship, lain down, and fallen sound asleep. So the captain approached him and said, How is it that you are sleeping? Get up, call on your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. Each man said to his mate, Come, let us cast lots so that we may learn on whose account this calamity has struck us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. And then they said to him, Tell us now, on whose account has this calamity struck us? What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He said to them, I am a Hebrew. And I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men became extremely frightened. And they said to him, how could you do this? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. So they said to him, what should we do to you that the sea may become calm for us? For the sea was becoming increasingly stormy. He said to them, pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you. For I know that on account of me, this great storm has come upon you. However, the men rowed desperately to return to land, but they could not, for the sea was becoming even stormier against them. Then they called on the Lord and said, We earnestly pray, O Lord, do not let us perish on account of this man's life, and do not put innocent blood on us. For you, O Lord, have done as you pleased. So they picked up Jonah and threw him into the sea. And the sea stopped its raging. Then the men feared the Lord greatly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. When we left off in verse 3 last week, Jonah was fleeing from the presence of the Lord. He was fleeing from this mission to to go and cry out against Nineveh. Nineveh is this great city, not yet the capital city, but a prominent city of the Assyrians, a, a wicked people that were known for their violence. He was called to go and cry out to them, uh, but he fled. He did not want to go. And what we looked at last week, as you follow the rest of the book, he doesn't want to go because he doesn't want them to repent. He wants to see them destroyed. And so he flees. That's where we left off last week. What we see this week is the futility of trying to flee from God. We learn that we cannot. 
Jonah could not and we cannot run from God. This futility of trying to run from God is is beautifully described in the 1893 poem by Francis Thompson. It's a poem that he wrote called The Hound of Heaven. Thompson was brilliant and deeply troubled. Uh, He was known through, in his school, going through high school and, and early college as, uh, as bright, but somewhat of a, of a loner and kind of eccentric. Uh, his fellow classmates could always tell when he was the one walking down the hall because he had a habit of like popping up his collar and kind of sliding along the wall, uh, even down the hallway. Uh, he graduated, he went to medical school for eight years, uh, but didn't end up fully completing it because he became addicted to opium. So he left school and essentially lived on the streets, worked menial jobs to be able to provide enough money to get more drugs. Uh, And yet he continued to write. Um, He continued to write. And this is probably his most famous uh, poem. Um, Another little tidbit of this is a book recently came out suggesting that he may have been Jack the Ripper, uh, which is just kind of one more slice of this, um, uh, this story. But in this poem, as he, as he writes, he writes about God as the, the hound of heaven pursuing him, even as he tried to, to flee from God. And I'll just read a little bit of it. The whole poem is it's, it's relatively long, but it's worth reading. I'll read just the first, not quite full stanza. It says, I fled him. That's how it begins. I fled him. Down the nights and down the days. I fled him. Down the arches of the years, I fled him. Down the labyrinthine ways of my own mind, and in the midst of tears, I hid from him. And under running laughter, up vistaed hopes, I sped and shot, precipitated, adown titanic glooms of chasmed fears from those strong feet that followed, followed after. But with unhurrying chase and unperturbed pace. He goes on to describe how, even as he has tried to flee from God, God pursues and God pursues. It's the same idea that we see in Luke, Luke chapter 15, where in three different parables, analogies, Jesus describes how God is the one who pursues. He he uses the analogy of a shepherd with 99 sheep and one strays and the shepherd goes and he finds that sheep. He uses the analogy of a woman who loses a coin and she ransacks her home basically trying to find this coin and rejoices when she does. And then he tells the parable of the prodigal son who, who leaves home and flees and ends up in misery and returns home and the father runs to him and embraces him because God is a pursuing God. Jonah discovers this here in chapter one. Discovers that God is a God who pursues. We cannot run from him. And it's true for Jonah and it's true for us today. In this chapter and really throughout the book, as we saw last week, God is putting a finger on Jonah's disobedience. And it's a disobedience rooted in a lack of compassion, an unwillingness to go to this hated enemy because he wants to see them suffer. And so in this chapter, we see God pursuing him even as Jonah tries to flee. And we see a contrast here between Jonah and actually these pagan sailors 
We see Jonah's lack of compassion continue on, but we see them displaying compassion in a way that would have seemed deeply ironic to this original audience. Let's look at the way that God pursues Jonah here and the way that he pursues us. First, we see that he pursues Jonah with a storm in verses 4 to 6. And really that storm continues on almost to the very end of the chapter. God takes center stage at the beginning of verse 4 where it says, The Lord hurled a great wind. We can't control the weather. And we know that. It becomes, becomes clear when anytime there's a, a disaster, even this past week, the intense rains in Yellowstone, washing away roads, closing the park. It's a reminder of how powerful the weather can be. And what we see here is this great storm, but it's one in which God is directly causing it. He, he is hurling the wind uh, in fact, hurling, the, the word behind that ends up being a repeated term here as God hurls the wind and the sailors start hurling cargo overboard. Uh, one person described it as like a competition of hurling. And who is going to win? It will be the Lord. It's actually the same word when they finally hurl Jonah overboard as well. And what is Jonah doing? This, this storm is increasing. The sailors are panicking. They're rightly fearful. They're trying to lighten the boat by tossing stuff overboard. They're trying to figure out what's happening. They're all crying out to their gods. It's a polytheistic place. They're all worshiping their own gods. And what is Jonah doing? He is sleeping down below. I've often wondered, and maybe you have too, why is he sleeping? An answer we might think of as well, it just shows his indifference to the situation. And so he doesn't care about the sailors. He doesn't care what happens. Um, that might be it. It might be a, a clue into his indifference. I think it's also possible that it's as, well, one 19th century Scottish pastor, he described it as the sleep of sorrow. That it's not his indifference that's on display here, but this sorrow, this sadness, uh, as he's fleeing from God. He's fleeing from his occupation as a prophet. And he's rejecting that and he knows it. And he's fleeing God and he knows it. And there's like a depression setting in. And maybe you've experienced that before. Depression is a complex thing. And so don't, don't hear me as oversimplifying it in this way. But if you've walked through a season of depression for whatever the cause, you know the experience of just wanting to sleep. And it's hard to get out of bed and it's hard to engage and perhaps that's what's going on. And perhaps in his experience, this sorrow is caused by his disobedience and this guilt and shame that he's, he's feeling from that. It's often been observed that few people are as unhappy as a disobedient Christian. Few people are as unhappy as the one who knows what God is telling him to do and is not doing it. And so perhaps that's it. We're not told. We're just told he's sleeping. So the captain comes and wakes him up because, again, they're just troubleshooting. They're trying to figure out who is responsible. And so is it Jonah? They don't know yet. They call him up. Notice this. A theme of Jonah, uh, part of the literary beauty of it is repetition. And when God first called Jonah in verse 1, he says, Arise, go, call out. Now when the captain comes down and Jonah's sleeping, he says, get up, call on your God. 
The Hebrew words behind that are actually the same as arise and cry out. So God has told him, arise, cry out to Nineveh. He's refusing, he's fleeing. And now he's awakened from slumber by a captain saying, arise and cry out. So Jonah comes up as well. And that's where we see this contrast between him and the sailors really kind of developed even more. But, but notice here that it shows God as sovereign over nature. And that'll be another theme of this book. God is the one hurling the storm. He's the one who stops the storm. He's the one who appoints a fish to come swallow Jonah. He's the one in chapter 4 that will cause this plant to rapidly grow and then die off. God is sovereign over nature. It is his world. And so why can't we flee from God? Where, where are we going to go? It's his world. Right? It's, it's kind of like a, a uh, four-year-old child who is sulking from her parents, and she decides that she's going to run away from her parents, but where she runs away is into the basement of her parents' house. And she's wearing the clothes that her parents gave her. Right? She's in the room that her parents own because they own the whole home. And she, she cannot flee from her parents in that sense. And, and here... Jonah is in God's world. He cannot flee from God because it is his world. God pursues Jonah, pursues him with the storm. He pursues him, even I think with this contrast that that we're meant to see, and perhaps Jonah as well, this contrast with these, we'll call them pagan sailors, and I don't mean that in an insulting way, but just in the sense of they're not following the God of Israel. They're, They're polytheistic, worshiping multiple gods, And we see them contrasting throughout here with Jonah. Uh, The sailors are determined to figure out who is at fault. Uh, Jonah doesn't appear to care, or again, he's sunk so deep in discouragement, he does not care. But they're trying to figure it out, and and so they cast lots uh, here in verse 7, after Jonah's up on board with them. How does casting lots work? Well, there's a few different ways it was practiced in the ancient world, and we don't know exactly which one they're doing here. It could be like dice that are alternating with light and dark colors and they would roll a couple of them and if two dark sides came up it meant the answer was no so they'd say hey is it this person they'd roll the dice if two dark ones came up no it's not him if two light sides came up yes it's him a light and a dark try again essentially that might have been it they also would do what sometimes people do today place names on a uh, on different sticks and they draw a stick at random And whichever one it is, they would determine that must be who it is. It's not that God is necessarily recommending this as a decision-making model here. Although, wouldn't it be handy, like if you're a parent and your kids are fighting and you don't know who's at fault, you're like, I'm just going to cast lots. (laughs) And (laughs) whoever it is, that's who's getting spanked. Um, I, I don't think that's what the point of this is, but it is describing this practice that they did and God Sovereignly chose to use this, even to put a finger on Jonah. And so they pepper him with questions. And those questions likely reflect their spiritual views, that there's many, many gods in the world that are associated with certain people groups and locations and even jobs. And so these questions are are not just curiosities about Jonah. They're trying to nail down who is the God that we've offended that we must sacrifice to? So they ask him questions. Where are you from? What do you do? What people are you from? 
He answers some of those questions. Look at verse 9 for how he answers. He says, I am a Hebrew. I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. He doesn't address the question about his occupation. We just have to be careful about not reading too much into details what aren't there, but it does make us wonder, is it because he doesn't want to admit that he's a prophet because he's fleeing from that? He's a disobedient prophet in this moment? Whatever reason, he doesn't mention that. But what he does say is significant. He associates the people group that he's with, but notice how he describes God. He says, I fear the Lord... Lord God. Lord is all capital letters. When we see that in the Old Testament, that means it's a, a way of identifying the proper name of God, Yahweh, the, the God who is, the God who described himself to uh, Moses in the burning bush as I am. Yahweh means I, I, I am. He is, the, he is the God who simply exists, who's real. So it's Yahweh. I serve Yahweh, the Lord the Lord God, God of heaven, who made the sea and dry land. In a polytheistic culture where people are worshiping all these various gods, he's trying to nail down and say, I worship the God who really is, and it's the God of heaven, not not just this little slice of land where my people live, the God of heaven. In fact, the God who made all the sea and all the dry land, he's just the God who is, and the God who really is, and the God who is the creator But notice what he says. He doesn't just say, that's my God. He says, I fear. I fear the Lord God of heaven. But but does he really fear the Lord? Fear, in the way that he's attempting to use it here, is a reverential awe that leads to obedience. That's how we see it used throughout Scripture. Think of just a few verses here. Deuteronomy 13.4. You shall follow the Lord your God. It's the same. Yahweh. Your God. And fear him. And you shall keep his commandments. Listen to his voice. Serve him. And cling to him. It's associating fearing the Lord with following. Keeping. Listening. Serving. Clinging to him. Similar passage. Joshua 24.14. Now therefore fear the Lord. And serve him in sincerity and truth. Is that what Jonah's doing? Is he obeying the Lord, following the Lord, clinging to the Lord? No, he is doing the opposite. In this moment, right, he is fleeing from the presence of the Lord. It's told us twice, it comes up again. He, he is disobeying the clear command of the Lord to go to Nineveh. He's going the opposite direction. He is not demonstrating this, he is not fearing the Lord. And I think that's one of the contrasts that we're meant to see here. Because it says, he fears the Lord, and yet it doesn't appear like he really does. Versus the sailors, they have a growing fear throughout this. Initially, of the storm. They fear the storm. And then their fear grows. And so watch for that theme. We'll come back to it in just a moment. So, the fingers put on Jonah... They know that he's fleeing from the presence of the Lord. He probably tells them right there, verse 10. uh, He told them that he's fleeing from the presence of the Lord. They ask, what should we do to you that the sea may become calm for us? Whatever answer they expected, it was not apparently, throw me into the water. Because they initially don't do that. Because they, 
They, they don't want to kill an innocent man. So I don't know if they thought, you know, he's going to say, offer this sacrifice, pray this prayer, do these things. I, I don't know. They didn't apparently expect him to say, throw him in. What if Jonah, on the other hand, would have said, it's because of me, because I'm disobeying, I'm fleeing from the presence of the Lord, turn the boat around, I'll, I'll go to Nineveh. What would have happened then? Again, we don't know, because the story doesn't tell us. That's not what he said, though. He said, throw me in the water. And again, we're sort of left to speculate. And, and a mark of good short story writing, whether it's in Scripture or actually other short stories you might read, is not filling in those details. And so the reader has to sort of ask, is it another act of disobedience? Is it essentially him saying, I would rather drown than go to Nineveh? Or is it repentance? I, I deserve what we're all getting. You don't deserve it. Let me just bear it alone. We don't know. We don't know. One author, though, puts it this way. As the rest of the book will show, Jonah's journey away from self-righteous pride will be a slow one. He doesn't yet appear to fully wrestle with this self-righteous pride, this lack of compassion. And even in chapter 4, he'll still be dealing with that. The sailors, though, they, to their credit, they don't want to do this. Verse 13, it says they tried desperately to return to land, but they could not, for the storm was becoming even greater. And so they're trying to get back to land, but as they row back to land, and perhaps they can even see it, the waves get bigger and bigger and bigger, and it becomes clear that this will not work. Verse 14, they're praying to this Lord that they have just learned of. Look at what they say. Verse 14, we earnestly pray, O Lord, they refer to him as, as Yahweh, do not let us perish on account of this man's life, and do not put innocent blood on us. For you, O Lord, have done as you have pleased. They they cannot win, and they know it. They can't get back to land. But they also don't want to be held guilty for tossing an innocent man overboard. And so they're pleading with this God they've just learned of, saying, don't, don't hold us accountable for this. It appears that this is what you're doing. And, and so they, they do. They, they cast him over. And then the storm stops. And I want you to notice, again, we're looking for this theme for them of fear. They fear as the storm is increasing uh, in verse 4. Their fear grows throughout. And now they throw him overboard. Verse 15, they hurl him, just as God hurled the wind and they hurled cargo. Now they hurl him and the sea stopped its raging. Then the men feared the Lord greatly. They already feared. They feared the storm. They feared they were going to die. And now they fear, and the language is even more, they feared a great fear. Why? The storm is over. They're not fearing the storm right now. They're fearing the God who can control the weather. And now they realize this. This God is real. And he caused the storm and he stopped the storm. Think of Peter in Luke chapter 5 when he was in the boat with Jesus and they'd been fishing all night, hadn't caught anything, and Jesus says, cast the net over here and you'll catch. 
And he says, basically, I don't think so, but if you say so, I'll do it. And they did, and they hauled in this huge catch of fish. And you might think Peter would say, well, thanks, that's great. But he doesn't. What he says is this. When Simon Peter saw that, this is Luke 5, 8, he fell down at Jesus' feet saying, go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Why did he respond that way? Because he realized that this Jesus was something, something not what he was expecting. That this Jesus can, can know this, that can even control this. Does he yet realize that Jesus is God in the flesh? Perhaps not. This is still early in the ministry. Perhaps he does. But his response is one of fear. I, I'm a sinful man. I, I can't be in your presence. Think about another storm. Matthew chapter 8. Jesus is in a storm with his disciples on a boat. And actually in a way that sort of parallels this with Jonah. The storm arises and the men are afraid and Jesus was sleeping. And he is woken up and they say, don't you care about us? Save us, we are perishing. And what he does is he says, you men of little faith, and he calms the storm. Says he got up, rebuked the winds and the sea, and it became perfectly calm. So stormy weather, he's sleeping. Men are afraid. He gets up, calms it. Do you notice the parallels with Jonah? But not a perfect match, right? Because unlike Jonah, Jesus is not a sinful man fleeing from the presence of the Lord. He, he is the Lord. And the men were amazed. And they said, what kind of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? It's the response of people when they kind of realize that God is real. And, and here they're realizing that Jesus is doing what only God can do. So these men here in Jonah 1, they, there's this movement for them from fearing the storm, greatly fearing the storm, trying to figure out whose God is responsible. Maybe it's this God of Jonah. And then when that God of Jonah actually does this, calms the storm, they fear a great fear. And it says they even offered sacrifice, verse 16, to the Lord and made vows. Could it be that they've simply added the Lord to their polytheistic kind of pantheon of gods and he's just one more God in there? It, that's possible. It doesn't tell us any more than just this right here. But could it also be that now they've turned to the Lord as the one true and living God, the God of heaven, the God who made the sea and the land. It's very possible. It's part of the irony that's woven throughout this book that Jonah did not want to go to a group of pagans and so God sent him to a different group of pagans. <laughs> And in spite of Jonah's best efforts to the contrary, God appeared to convert the hearts of these people. In spite of Jonah, right? Not, not because of Jonah. Not because Jonah is this faithful, winsome witness to the true and living God, but in spite of Jonah. Again, one author puts it this way. Jonah was fleeing God because he did not want to go and show God's truth to wicked pagans but that is exactly what he ends up doing. Jonah's anti-missionary activity has ironically resulted in the conversion of non-Israelites. 
Isn't it just like God to save in spite of us? I mean, it's better that we obey, and, and, and God is working so that Jonah would obey and go to Nineveh, and yet God is not limited even by that. He is a saving God, and he will do what he will, even in spite of our failures. I was thinking that's a great comfort to parents who wonder if their failings um, as a parent, as a dad, as a mom, have become a block to where God could not save their children. No, God is a saving God. And so even if we've blown it, he can still save. And it's back sometimes even in spite of our failings. doesn't mean that we should not try to be faithful and to model what it is to follow Christ and teach our kids. No, we should. Of course we should. Just like Jonah should go to Nineveh. And yet God's not limited even by our failings, I think we see in this passage. God continues to pursue. He pursues Jonah. He pursues him in the last verse we see actually by swallowing him, appointing this great fish that swallows him. Next week, we'll look more at this because that really introduces chapter two. Chapter two, he is in the belly of this great fish. And so next week, we'll look at that. We'll see Jonah's prayer as he's inside this great fish. We'll deal with questions you might have about is this believable? This seems kind of like a fairy tale. Uh, if you have kind of some skeptical questions, we'll, we'll deal with that next week as well. But what I want you to notice here is God's pursuit. Jonah's in the water and God pursues. In this case, he rescues him. The, getting swallowed by the fish sort of sounds like a bad deal. Unless you realize that the alternative is him drowning. God is rescuing him. And he's rescuing him in a way that gets his attention. It's part of his relentless pursuit of Jonah. And so that's what I want you to notice. God is pursuing him. And and he's cultivating within him a a compassion. I think that's the intention. Jonah here, remember he doesn't want to go to the Ninevites because he hates them. And in some ways his anger is sort of justifiable. It, it's, they're a wicked people. They've, they've killed and slaughtered and tortured many, including the Israelites. And so that might be part of it. it. It's an understandable anger. That anger could be justified. The fear could be justified. They're a brutal people. And yet coexisting with even that anger and fear ought to be a compassion that is willing to extend and offer for them to repent and, and turn to the Lord. And so God is drawing that up within Jonah. And how is he doing it? By showing compassion to Jonah. He could have just wiped Jonah out. The whole boat he could have if he wanted to. And sent somebody else to Nineveh. But he doesn't. He is drawing Jonah. He's rescuing Jonah. We'll see in chapter 2. He's even doing an internal work in Jonah. How does God help Jonah grow in compassion? How, How can he help you grow in compassion? by recognizing God's compassion. We see here that we cannot outrun God. God can send a storm directly and deliberately as a means of discipline, whether it's weather like this or just hardship he brings into life. He he can do that. Far more often, it's simply the consequences of our own sin, cutting against the grain of God's moral law in the universe, 
And so our sin brings about the natural consequences that he has built into his world. And even that is part of God's pursuit. He says, if you do this, you will suffer. And we do it, and we suffer, and it's a reminder that we're in his world. And so every time we bump up against that, every time we cultivate a sin in our heart that comes out in our actions, we're reaping what we sow. We, we cultivate bitterness towards others, and we, we reap relationships that are harmed. We cultivate sex outside of marriage, and we reap relationships that are harmed. And on and on and on, we are reaping what he's built into his world, and it's a reminder that we cannot flee from him. Whether that sounds like good news to you, that you cannot flee from God, or bad news depends on who you think God is, right? God is good. It's good that we can't flee from him. If, on the other hand, you're not quite so sure about God's character, that might sound like a scary thing. But what we see in the, in the word is that God is good, and the best thing for us is to be near him. And so for him to pursue us is good. Let's pray.